Today's episode is brought to you by MetPro. Hey, do you want to improve your health but not sure where to start? With thousands of health strategies available, identifying which one works for your body is extremely difficult. I know it was for me until I found MetPro. The key is to understanding and mastering your metabolism. So if you're looking for a high-touch experience working with a metabolic expert, or if you want access to the tools their industry-leading coaches use, visit metpro.co, that's metpro.co slash dose to take their assessment and speak with their team to learn which option is best for you. And hey, the Dose listeners will get up to one month free if you sign up. Head to metpro.co slash dose to take advantage of this opportunity. More on MetPro later in this episode. On today's episode, Natalie Kogan. The leaders that we need are emotionally aware. They are fueled. They have energy. They are taking care of themselves because that is the only way that we can bring our full capacity to lead others. And so I think we need to clarify our lenses around what it means to be a servant leader because nowhere in there did Robert Greenleaf wrote about modern leadership, not taking care of your needs, and modern research shows us how much we literally infect others, especially on our teams, with either the good or the not so great. Hey, welcome to The Dose, a show dedicated to deep and engaging conversations, highlighting individuals that are in the pursuit of authentic and courageous leadership who approach life with insatiable curiosity, bold action, and common sense in these divisive and uncommon times. It's my hope you take something away from each and every one of these conversations and apply it to your own life as we all intentionally attempt to become the best we can possibly be by living out our purpose and calling, committing to a life of service, and helping make this place better than we found it. You know, we're experiencing unprecedented levels of stress and burnout in our society. Exhaustion is at an all-time high. Leaders are depleted. Employees are burning out. Parents are at their breaking point. We're in desperate need of a new path forward and one that allows the full expression and embracing of our humanness. That's what my next guest, today's guest, is all about, Natalie Kogan. She's the author of a brand new book called The Awesome Human Project. She is an emotional fitness and leadership expert, a previous author of Happier Now. She always tries to show us the way to stop struggling and start living our best life. She's very inspiring. She has a proven program that has transformed over a million people. Natalie makes the compelling case that while challenge in life is constant, struggle is optional. And she's absolutely right. Today's episode, she shares some of this accessible, practical, and exciting steps for reducing burnout on both the macro and a daily basis so that we can live, work, and lead with more energy, joy, and meaning, even during the difficult times. She wrote The Awesome Human Project in response to her own journey, a refugee who achieved tremendous success. She's come to see that struggle is a way of life, and I agree. However, her burnout taught her a powerful lesson. It's that you can't give what you don't have. Amazing. She writes, strengthening your emotional fitness is an essential investment in your success and leadership and an act of love to everyone you care about. I can't agree more. She is an awesome guest. This is an awesome conversation. I really enjoy her energy, her enthusiasm, and her common sense and contrarian approach to the way we look and deal with stress and burnout. Here she is, Natalie Kogan, here on The Dose. You know, watching your TED Talk, one of the better TED Talks I've, I've watched. And Thank you. Your origin story, which I think it's really important for my listeners to know that. I mean, you grew up for the first 13 years of your life in the Soviet Union, near kind of the heyday, near the end of the, the Soviet Union, before the wall fell down in the late 80s. 
gosh, what was that like growing up in the Soviet Union in the mid 70s to the late 80s? Yeah, I mean, the word that comes to mind is a bit surreal. You know, it's interesting. It's been 32 years. We've been here in the United States for 32 years. And sometimes it seems like five minutes ago. And sometimes it seems like I'm telling a story about someone else that I read in a book. Um, but uh, it was surreal in a way. So, you know, you're, you're right. It was kind of um, towards the end. So we left in May of 1989. Um, and that's, you know, the collapse of the Berlin Wall was coming and then everything kind of exploded at the time but um you know in you know and what complicates things is we're jewish and to be a jew in russia under the soviet regime was a very special thing because jews were officially considered second rate so in my really? passport my nationality was listed as jewish not russian um and there was an official policy of persecution um everywhere from there are quotas for jews in colleges to get jobs my grades in school i couldn't get the highest grade in my class um, so I always wanted to make sure everyone had my notes because I was a total nerd and overachiever. But as a Jew, I couldn't have the highest grade. So I had to get someone else to score the same for me to keep my high grade and all kinds of stuff. So I had this kind of double existence that almost from I remember from early childhood was, you know, don't tell anyone you're Jewish. And the biggest compliment was, wow, it's a good thing you don't look Jewish. Um, wow. And I kind of lived this double life. I knew my parents always wanted to try and get out. Um, and then there was the never talk about that in school. Um, and so, you know, in some ways, um, it was really harsh. But, you know, I have a lot of really warm memories. I mean, all the some of the things that, you know, you know, it's been fun. My husband's American. So it's fun to hear the what you guys were learning about us and what the stories were. <laughs> Some of them are hilarious. You know, when people tell me they were scared of the Russians, like we were on the other side, couldn't find winter boots, didn't have enough food. And I'm like, you guys are scared of us. Like we didn't have enough butter or milk. Um, so some of this stuff is ridiculous. And some of it is true. You know, it was um, kind of a place that also had a lot of awesomeness to it. I'm always the first to say that the Russian education system is one of the uh, gifts. Um, you know, my daughter is 17. She's gone through, she just got accepted to Wesley University of first school. So I must share this with you, Richard. Think first podcast I'm saying this on. Yeah, it's <laughs> great. But I've watched her, you know, get educated in a very good public school district. And it's the Russian education system is just spectacular. So I'm very grateful for that. When I came here, I was four years ahead of math. Oh, um, really? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, but so there was a lot of goodness there too, but it was a you know, a country that, um, you know, we were always looking ahead, like wherever you went, there were these huge posters of Lenin pointing forward, because we lived in these constant five year plans that the party would put out. And they changed the plans every two years, because we never could get to the five year plan, obviously, because at the end of five years, there was euphoria, everybody had everything and it was bl bliss and we beat everybody. And, you know, in the meantime, there's food shortages and clothing shortages and you know, destitute situation. And so they just changed the plan every two years. And so it was always pushed out. So it was just like everyone had this suspended reality um, of, wow, like there's the euphoria of communism and there's my life. And I live in a communal apartment and I don't have enough food for my kids. Um, you know, I remember my, um, you know, I lived in St. Petersburg, very cold, very, very, very cold in the winter, winter basically from October through middle of April. And every winter there was this, I remember this panic on my parents' faces because, you know, as a kid, you're growing. So how to get boots, how to get a winter coat, because it wasn't like you'd go to the store. 
you know, when you try to plan production for millions of people, guess what? It breaks. You don't know how to plan. It doesn't work. And so, I mean, I remember one year, my grandma, my dad's mom, she stood in line for two and a half days to get me a pair of boots. And by the time she got to the end of the line, they had random sizes. So you would get them anyway. And then there was a black market. So that was all very real. Like my parents would pull me out of school because there was butter rationing at the store. Suddenly they pull me out of school so I could go in and, you know, get the extra ration because it was two bricks of butter per person. Um, And so there was hardship, but I actually, you know, I, I owe this to my parents. I, um, grew up, they try to shield me as much as they could from the anti-Semitism. And somehow my mom made meals out of not enough food. And, um, you know, I excelled. I was an overachiever always. So I excelled in an education system that, you know, created a lot of challenges. Um, But yeah, and then in, you know, in 1989, in May, uh, they decided to allow Jews to leave. And so the conditions for leaving was you have to give up everything. So we were allowed two suitcases per person and $200 per person. And everything wow. else had to stay behind. We had to give up our citizenship, which we were fine to do. Um, but it was a pretty brutal process to get out. And we left. So it's me and my parents. And um, literally with six suitcases and $600. And we went to a refugee settlement first in Vienna, in Austria, and then in Italy for several months to apply for permission to enter as refugees, and which we did, very lucky after two and a half months. And so my American journey begins in the projects outside of Detroit. Um, you know, very, very grateful to have welfare food stamps, but basically, uh, you know, as a 13 and a half year old who doesn't speak English, who has lost her only identity of a smart kid because I don't speak English, so I'm all remedial yeah. classes. I don't understand what's going on. It was a rough start, rough start. Oh my God. I had so many questions there. But when you you decide to leave and you give up everything, I mean, the hunger for a new start was so powerful. I mean, was I just trying to put myself in your parents' positions. It had to be just mm. ultimately just, oh my God, excited, but frightened at the same time, horribly frightened. I can imagine if you only had whatever, $600 to your name and two suitcases and left everything behind. Well, it's, you know, I, my husband and I are a few years older than what my parents were when we left. And we say this to ourselves all the time. Like it's, you know, it's good for perspective. Like when I start to stress about something, I'm like, wait, hold on a second. You know, like my parents didn't know where they'd get food. Um, I don't think I'd ever seen my parents as scared, especially my dad. He was always kind of the strong one. I just remember being him being pale all the time. Just uh, but in typical right. Russian oh. Jewish fashion, we never talked about it. When we got here, you know, first of all, we didn't have the luxury. And this is probably why I do the work that I do, which is all around emotions, because I learned that you when something is tough, you just push yourself through. You just power through because talking about feelings was a luxury just my parents couldn't afford. Um, But yeah, it's, uh, you know, they were excited and they were doing it for themselves and for me. And they had tremendous amount of courage. And I think it's also just feeling like they were leaving a popcorn cooker that was about to pop. I mean, you, ju- you could just feel. You could sense that something was about, sell, something was yeah, happening. Was stuff. Yeah. So I'm very grateful to them that they took the journey. It was hard for all of us in different ways. I mean, but father's just, you know, as, as but you we look, did it. Obviously, when you look back with, with experience and marination, uh, time to, to, to put some wisdom on it. I mean, yeah, I mean, that, all those experiences – 
as you choose to do was embrace those things and that allowed you, I mean that it shaped you to who you are today. I mean basically, right? I mean, so you got to you got to look at those hardships as the gifts that they are. I mean, unfortunately you had to go through it, but fortunately you had to go through it, right? So you cuz you No, wouldn't... totally. You know, I I talk about someone asked me the other day in an interview about, you know, how did being a refugee affect you? And I said, it affects me every day. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see it as an event. I see it as a life experience. It is, you know, there's this exercise psychologists do where, you know, start to describe yourself. What's the first word that you would use? And I would say refugee before I say mom, before I say woman, before I say leader, speaker, author. Um, it is the defining and everything, including my achievements and my downfalls and my burnout and my challenges, it all, I can trace it all to that, not just to that event, but it's who I am. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I mean, that's everybody's life, right? It just isn't varying, de varying degrees of intensity. Yours is probably up there on a scale of one to 10 at 11, you know, for someone who's 13 to be thrust into that and to see that, to see your parents and the, the fear and the stress and the courage you know, I mean, all of that, you saw the negative, but I mean, the man, that's just the ultimate in courage, right? I mean, they, the courage they... and also, you know, the story I love to tell and actually I've been talking a lot about the story recently, um, you know, to a lot of leaders that I do work with and I speak with around gratitude mm -hmm. and finding the ability to be grateful for things when life sucks. And the story is that I think you and your listeners will appreciate. So we were in Vienna and we were living in this dilapidated building with a bunch of, you know, other refugees in the red light district, because that's, I guess, where they, you know, could hide us. And my dad, who is the most brilliant Russian scientist, just imagine like the Russian genius. My dad is totally that crazy, but amazing. He's a PhD in polymer physics and like the biggest brain I know. He got a job at night unloading crates at a local oh, market just to make a couple dollars for food. And so he comes in one morning. My mom, you know, we all shared this tiny room. My mom and I just waking up and he was like, okay, girls, get up take, you know, let's get ready. We're going to go see the Vienna Opera House today because they have free tours. And my response, I'll never forget, it was one of those moments where I looked at him in, in Russia, but I was like, you are crazy. You are insane. We are in this disgusting place. We don't even have any money. We don't even know if we'll get to America. You want to go sightseeing? And I'll never forget when dad said to me, he said, you know, you're absolutely right. Life is awful right now. And we have so many things we could sit here and just cry about. But also, we could go and walk around this beautiful city and see something beautiful and enjoy doing it as a family. And if you think at that time, I was like, oh, yeah, dad, that's very wise. No, absolutely not. I ignored everything you said. Right. And I had to go. They made me go. We went to the opera house. Was, you know, the whole time I was like very angry that I had to do this horrible thing because the way that I thought is when something is wrong, you got to own the struggle. So how could my parents be enjoying something? We have to sit and cry over this horribleness we're in. My dad, with all his charisma, befriended this gentleman in line uh, who offered to buy us ice cream after the tour. So here we are in Vienna. There's a photo from that day. We have no money, but this guy just bought us ice cream. We're in a cafe in a beautiful city. Everyone's smiling in the photo. And that photo, I have it. My face is cut out because a couple of years after we came here, I cut out my face because everyone is smiling. And on my face is the hold on struggle. I wouldn't allow myself to have that moment of joy or gratitude for this guy's kindness because I thought that you only get to do that when everything is done. 
once everything is perfect, then, then I get to enjoy. And I tell that story because my dad was actually teaching me a lesson 32 years ago that I, you know, gratitude is one of the skills I now teach and talk about in my books and my work. Um, and it's especially important when life sucks. And I think it's so, you know, I've been talking a lot about gratitude during the pandemic because the human brain, when we faced with challenges, we go into fight or flight. Our brain goes into fear. We release a lot of stress. Gratitude is our way out. Gratitude and focusing on the things that are okay, even when things are not okay in many ways, is what gives us strength. It gives us resilience. They've done a lot of research that shows that when you're going through something difficult, when you practice gratitude, you have more resilience. You help other people more. You're more effective at solving problems. And um, that's, uh, that's a lesson that took me a while to learn, but I'm grateful to have learned it. Um, and you, I share the story now because I think it's good perspective for all of us to remember. That's a great story. How, what, what point did that kind of slap you in the face and that became clear to you? Like what happened? Well, it, it yeah, it's a good question. What well, slapped me in the face when I, you know, we came to the U.S. and um, one thing I did have going for me was hard work. I've always been a hard worker. I still am. I, I love work. I think work is a beautiful thing. I'm um, against all this work life balance conversation because we put work in opposition to life. I think it's life yeah, balance I, that I, we're looking for. I hate that term work. Um, balance. Just I, immediately yeah. puts work in opposition. But anyway, so I had hard work going for me. So I did eventually obviously learn to speak English. And I, over the last 20 years, built, you know, I had worked very, very hard at a very successful career as in Microsoft and McKinsey. And this is the fifth company I've built. And I wrote books and I was in venture capital and all kind of I took care of my family. I even bought my parents a really fancy car. Like I really wanted to do that. Yeah. Um, and uh, the reason I say all that is because I did all that um, from a place of uh, being a martyr. I really thought that was the right thing to do, especially as a leader leading teams. I thought, okay, if I just care about other people, if I care about doing meaningful things, it doesn't matter how I feel. And then six years ago, a little more than six years ago, I completely burnt out. Um, and when I say I burnt out, I mean that very literally. I stopped being able to function at work as a mom, as a human. It was very, very scary. And I almost lost everything. And that's when all these things hit me in the face slowly. It wasn't like some, oh, I get it. But I got to such a dark place and that I realized I have to learn to live and work differently. And I can't do it from a place of struggle and how I feel matters and it impacts everyone I work with and everyone I live with. And that's when I started, you know, I went searching and that's when I started reading all this research about gratitude and emotional fitness and acceptance. And it, it all seemed completely woo woo to me. I just need to say that at the beginning, you know, I was like, what is all this stuff? But, uh, the, my practicing is what convinced me. And mm -hmm. so I began to practice that gratitude was the first skill that I began yeah. to practice very reluctantly, thinking it's completely woo-woo and what is this going to do? And yeah, there's a lot of research, but how is it going to help me? Yeah. Um, and it began to change my daily experience. Um, it's not that I never had stress or bad days, but I had strength and I had fuel and I could appreciate the good things in my life and good things on my team and celebrate small things. And all of a sudden I became a force of good but from a well that was full instead of empty. And so it took a while, but eventually I had to relearn the lessons. Oh, there's so much good stuff that you said there. And I really appreciate the perspective. It's almost like we have to have, I don't know why as humans, we're just so, but again, it's part of that. In marriage, you got to have these things, these splat, mo I call them splat moments where you, you know you get slapped in the face or you, you, you kind of hit rock bottom or something happens. And you got this, this burnout and you almost, 
completely, like you said, you got in a dark space and fortunately you were able to, I don't know, see the light, I guess. But it's, it, I've never thought about this before because I do preach selfless leadership, the selflessness. Mm. And I've never thought about that, that if you're not careful, you can take it too far, right? You can take it I've too far. I've never and- thought about that. I've never thought about it in all this time that I preach selfless leadership. Mm. Well, Be- I'm so grateful we've connected and I get to share this with you and um, maybe shift your you know, some of the thoughts on that a little bit, you know, there's a whole chapter in my new book about leadership and what it means. You know, I, um, the idea of servant leadership, right. That Robert Greenlee yep. wrote about in the seventies. Yep. I hope, I think probably many of your listeners or I'm sure you've read his essay. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't read it until I started working on my book and, uh, it's actually a fascinating read because what he talks about is that you as a leader um, and as a servant leader, it's all about allowing and fueling and helping the people you lead to become their best selves. And he actually talks about their well-being and how it's not possible to do without. And where, where I think we've gone wrong, um, you know, it's become very popular, this idea of leaders eat last, right? Mm-hmm. Which, which is comes big, from the military, which is just cor- about leaders. Right. Marine right? Corps philosophy is all about leaders. Eat exactly. Yep. So, you know, I'm actually I have an article that's coming out on this. Um, probably will be out by the time this airs of why leaders shouldn't eat last, because we've taken servant leadership to mean martyr leadership. And as I have, and again, I do so much work with leaders. I run, I run leadership groups every year. I do a lot of work with leaders and companies. I know I'm not alone where we've taken the servant leadership to mean I don't matter my needs come last. I need to put my team's needs first. And uh, I cannot tell you how many leaders are burnt out, how many leaders are burning out. And so I am here to flip that on its head and to say to every leader, including you, that you cannot give what you don't have. Yeah. And if you look at, um, so my definition of a leader that it's taken me a while to come up with, but um, for me, you're a leader if you positively impact other people's capacity to thrive. Yeah. And you simply cannot do that unless you positively impact yours. I spent 20 years as a very caring leader. I cared very much about my teams and their success and their well-being. But I had no tools because I was bringing I, – I never took care of my emotional energy, my mental health. Again, that was like, woo to me. Who cares? No one ever talked to me about emotions. So – what I brought to them was my exhaustion, my overwhelm, my impatience, my inability to really listen clearly. Because when we um, don't have energy, when we're overwhelmed or exhausted, actually our brain reacts as if it's we're in danger. Yep. So we stop listening to diverse viewpoints. We cannot analyze things. We're not patient. And so we cannot be at our best unless we make our own emotional fitness our number one priority. And more than that, we all share our emotions with others, right? As human beings, our emotions are literally contagious. And this is especially true between bosses and um, managers and people who report to them. Um, There's a lot of research that shows that if a leader on a team is thriving, everyone on the team has a greater chance to be thriving and the opposite is true. And so this is something that I, you know, this is, you hear the passion in my voice. I'm very passionate to teach leaders, but I had to learn it the hard way because it was only after I burned out and went through a really horrific two years. And I don't want to sugarcoat it. I had to put my life on hold. I had to put my work on hold. I really was not capable of functioning. 
But it was only when I began to get more honest with myself and with people in my life, including people who work for me, when I realized what I had been bringing to them, they could sense what I was feeling, but I never acknowledged it because that would make me a bad leader. And why do I want to talk about my feelings? That makes me selfish. And so I created this culture of mistrust yeah. Because I would show up with this like positivity because that's what I thought they wanted, but they sensed something else. And so they just made their own stories. Yeah, that's right. And so to me, um, what I want, uh, the leaders that we need are emotionally aware. They are fueled. They have energy. They are taking care of themselves because that is the only way that we can bring our full capacity to lead others. And so I think we need to, you know, clarify our lenses around what it means to be a servant leader, because nowhere in there did Robert Greenleaf wrote about modern leadership, Hmm. not taking care of your needs. And modern research shows us how much we literally infect others, especially on our teams with either the good or the not so great. And we'll be right back after this message. Hey, you're like me, you're wanting to improve your health, but never sure where to start. With thousands of health strategies available, identifying which one works for your body is difficult. I know it has been for me until I found MetPro. According to MetPro, the key to seeing results is mastering your metabolism. At MetPro, your metabolism isn't some mystery. It's a data point. Armed with hard science, MetPro is your health concierge, delivering one-on-one coaching and personalized nutrition and fitness regimes. It's not just about weight loss. MetPro's coaches provide business professionals, athletes, weekend warriors, and everyone in between the support and education they need to live a healthier life. MetPro's team of experts has worked with the most recognizable name in sports, entertainment, and business. They've helped thousands of individuals like you and me transform their bodies by hacking their metabolism. I've been using MetPro for five weeks, and I couldn't be more thrilled. I finally feel like I got it figured out. This onboarding program was great. The intuitive app I can't say enough of. It helps me plan my meals gives me a shopping list. I'm eating the foods I enjoy. And most importantly, I got increased energy and I'm seeing weight loss. I couldn't be more thrilled with MetPro. Recently, they launched a new tool that allows you to experience the same science and tailored strategy that their experts use. Look, this isn't food logging. It's not a tool or a workout app. The MetPro app allows you to track, analyze, and learn what your metabolism responds to best. And that's the key. That's the thing I've never had before until now. So if you're looking for a high-touch experience working with a metabolic expert, or if you want to access the tools that industry-leading coaches use, visit metpro.co slash dose. That's metpro.co slash dose to take their assessment and speak with their team to learn which option is best for you. Best of all, listeners will get up to one month free when they sign up. Head to metpro.co slash dose to take advantage of this opportunity. And now back to the show. That's spot on. I I can't agree with you 100% more. And I was, as you were sitting there talking, I was thinking about, you know, what I learned in the Marine Corps. And it was that we, we promoted that lead. And I and there's certainly value in that, you know, in doing that. But there's a there's a, a leadership trait that doesn't get talked about a lot that the Marine Corps, under kind of their 14 leadership traits, and it's in and it's endurance. And mm. I think a lot of times when yes. we, from the Marine Corps perspective, when you hear endurance, yeah, of course, top physical fitness. You know, I'm if you know, I better be able to keep up with my troops if they can walk 10 miles. I better be out there leading the front. So I got to be endurance. But what gets overlooked a lot, there's, if you look at the definition of endurance, when they're talking about endurance as a leadership trait, um, it's emotional and mental endurance as well. And it says exactly. you, have, you have to find ways to be, you know, if, like you said, if I don't have it and I can't give it, 
And so you have to take care of yourself first and foremost. You have to lead yourself before you lead anybody else. And part of leading and yourself you to, is what you just said. Is you, and you have to fuel yourself. You have to right? fuel yourself. And that's what you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. So what I talk, I mean, it's such a perfect example, Richard. I love that you brought up endurance uh, and sustainability, mm-hmm. right? And so physical fitness, like you just said, in the Marine Corps, you need to, if you want to be physically fit, that means you have to consistently maintain your physical fitness. Well, I talk about emotional fitness, mm-hmm. same thing. Yep. If you want to be emotionally fit, you have to practice. And That's that right. means every day you have to practice emotional awareness and gratitude and self-awareness and self-care and doing things that fuel your energy. And that cannot be ever considered selfish No. because it is the only way that you can show up as your best self to the people you lead. And there is no way around it. And again, I this sounds weird, but I love that I have firsthand experience because I know how much I cared about people I led. I know how authentic and yeah. genuine I was in that care. And I was hurting them by ignoring my own emotional fitness. Yeah. I was hurting them and our ability to succeed. Yeah. And you th- I think about all this, you know, we, we've all seen it, right? And we've, we've manifested it ourselves and when we failed as leaders. But I think about a lot of times when I'm having conversations about leadership or even coaching or if I get inserted in an organization and we're talking about it, it's always we're always dealing with the dysfunctions, right? And mm-hmm. I'm thinking about all the dysfunctions. And, and as I've coached people, I said, look, you know, you can't fix this person. You need, to me, it's, it's been this kind of progression towards empathy. I, I think back to when I worked in the corporate arena, I don't know, 15 years ago I was working and I was working for a CEO and it was oil and water. I mean, I just, I, this, me and this guy are never going to be drinking buddies. I couldn't stand this guy. He couldn't stand me. And, you know, for six months I sat around the, the virtual, you know, not literally, but, you know, I would bitch about him around the water cooler because it was fun and it was cathartic to kind of complain about him and how much of a loser, lack of leader he was. And, and at some point, I don't even know how I got the light on this, but when I started looking at how his emotional fuel tank was empty and I started looking at it from an empathetic lens yes, and it changed and we never became drinking buddies, but you know, we certainly respected each other and we did some really kick-ass things because I augmented where he was weak and he, he could trust me that I was trying to, I saw the, emo, I saw from a personal standpoint, what he was struggling with. And I tried uh, intentionally tried to help him become a better leader, even though I didn't like him, but I certainly came to respect him at the end. And even to this day, well, I think that, if he called me, I, think, I would, I would, Hey, how are you doing? You know? Yeah. And well, was, I think that's, um, that says a lot about you, Richard, and about your kindness um, and ability to look beyond the annoying to recognize the person is struggling. I mean, which is also compassion, right? It's one of the skills I teach. You know, I get a question often. Um, you know, yes, Natalie, all these things you're talking about is great. I'm going to practice, but what do I do if my leader, or my manager, completely like never talks about self care? You know, what do I do? And I tell them what you just said try to approach it from a place it's not that they're not talking about this because they're a jerk or they hate you or they don't care about your well-being maybe they are like where i was and they just have no idea yeah and that's what i had no idea Mm -hmm. i just i live from the neck up no one ever i went to mckinsey right after college you know which is yeah i guess it's still a premier firm at the time it was you know the job and the most impossible job and all that stuff and we got amazing training and everything communication 
a quantitative analysis. Like, I mean, as some of the best, I didn't go get an MBA after that. I was like, this is my MBA. Not once did anyone talk to me about emotions. So I just assume early on, like what well, my emotions have nothing to do with it. And so what you did, Richard, is compassion because you understood actually it's not because this guy was trying to be a jerk. He was struggling and didn't have the tools to handle it or articulate it. And I cannot tell you how many leaders I come across in my work who are, you know, when I share my personal story, it's kind of the quiet conversation, but they tell me, wow, I think I'm there or I think I'm close to that, you know, because we don't burn out, you know, in my book, I talk about daily burnout. Burnout doesn't have to be this huge snowball that I went through. We all know the feeling of just being on empty at the end of the day, right? Yeah, and, and so and we it, can daily burn out. And it's a slow um, fade, right? I mean, it is a slow fade. It isn't, everybody thinks, you know, planes just blow up in the sky. No, it's a slow fade. And it's the same thing with us personally, right? I mean, it's just this compounding of, of you know, how many hundreds of days of, I just feel drained at the end of the day. At some point, all that compartmentalization is going to come out some way. I mean, literally, I couldn't have said it better myself. You just summarized my whole story. I, I, it was 20 years and then it was two really difficult years at the end. And, but it wasn't, you know, people ask me in retrospect, were there warning signs? There were millions, Uh, but did I pay attention to any of them? No. No. I mean, I remember days where, you know, my, my, everyone in that day would ask me if I'm okay. And if they could help my team, the person at the grocery store, my husband, did that raise a flag? No, I just thought they were really annoying. Right. Right. Because <laughs> the, the challenge is, and this is the challenge. And this is why I do the work that I do it. I try to teach these emotional skills to teams and companies and people before people get to that dark place. When we get to that place, again, I study the brain a lot. Our brain goes into survival mode. When you're in survival mode, you're not really open to help. You're not really open to someone telling you, how about you do this to take care of yourself? You're not open to trying anything new. The brain has pulled all energy into it. We're not going to do this. We're just going to try to survive. Um, And uh, it's really hard to take an action. It's really hard to do something. And so, again, it's like physical fitness, right? Imagine like if you you know, haven't lifted weights in years and you go and you try to lift this huge heavy weight, you're going to pull and break something and rip something and you're going to get hurt. The same thing with emotional fitness. I'd ignored it for 20 plus years more. You know, I was 40 when this happened. So again, this is why I'm on this mission to get people, but especially leaders to recognize that their number one priority is not their team. I ask leaders, what is your number one priority? They tell me my team, setting objectives, being clear, defining our purpose. And nope, 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 nope. Those are all wonderful things. They're not your number one priority. Your number one priority is your emotional fitness as a leader. I agree. Because when you show up that way, you can see things clearly. You're mm-hmm. being, like you said, you can be empathetic towards others. You can hear different things. You can be there to comfort others. You can identify the purpose better, and you can actually help people thrive, which is what I think this is all about. I agree with you 100%. You're hitting so many, I mean, everything you're saying 100%. And I, I was just thinking about some, even the last two or three years, how I was doing some training at an organization and talking about this. And and when they brought me in to talk about leadership, I think externally, when I asked them, well, what are your expectations? What are you hoping to get from this? Well, I want to learn how to be, you know, this. I want to learn how to motivate the people. And I'm like, okay, I want to, you know, I want to be a success. I want to be this. I want to be that. And then when I spend most of my time, and this has happened, it happened organically over time as I've really from 
this show has helped me doing this, having conversations with people like you and doing this for nine years has been my best leadership training than, you know, anything that I did in the Marine Corps or anything else. It's just talking to people like yourself and it, and what I spent most of my time and I I really found myself passionate about was this, I didn't call it self-care. I called it more Mm self-awareness and and getting the head trash right. And I just started sharing authentically and vulnerably. And I got this from having conversations on the show early on, you know, and I've said this story many times on the show about how people, they say, what's, what's after 500 conversations, what's the biggest takeaway? And I said, it's that everybody is dealing with this head trash, the imposter syndrome, the limiting beliefs, the negative self-talk, and it never goes away. Mm-hmm. And people say, oh, it never goes away. And I just realized that everybody's chasing all of these self-help improvements, these leadership improvements and that because they think there's something wrong with them, that they're sick, that they're weak because they have these limiting. And and I've just come to embrace over the last 10 years that like, yeah, okay, it never goes away. Well, it's as I've said it on the show, we spend most of our lives and our years lamenting the fact, stressing over the fact that dragons are always presenting themselves and we slay a dragon and we celebrate and we think we're done. And the next day, another dragon shows up that's even worse than the last one. Or maybe the same damn dragon, you know, like a hydra regrows its head and comes back. And it's I'm like, that same dragon is here. Why am I, you know, and we feel like there's something wrong with us. And I just shifted the, and what I'm hearing you say, it's just allowing me, it's the same thing where I've shifted to, I, I'm going to take my limited time and energy and resources and figure out how to be the best dragon slayer instead of trying to live in a world where there are no dragons. And exactly. And the, you know, one of the first sentences in my new book, it says being human is hard. It says what? Being say that human, it says being human is hard. Yeah, really hard. <laughs> being human is hard. Right. And being a leader is hard. Yep. And I think it's really, really important to have that's part of the awareness. And it's hard because of external challenges. And then it's hard because of all the things you're talking about. You're talking about, you know, I talk a lot about, um, in my work, just, you know, I was in my book, there's a whole neuroscience lesson, which is hopefully fun and entertaining, but just understanding that our brain is here and our brain doesn't really care about our emotional fitness or our success. Right. Your brain only wants to do one thing. And the only thing it wants to do is to help you survive. And your brain is really good at survival, but we are not here to survive. We're here to live, to experience, to thrive, mm-hmm. to do that. We have to learn these emotional fitness skills to, and I define emotional fitness just to define it, which is all about creating a more supportive relationship with yourself, your thoughts, your emotions, and other people. And so I would, your analogy, it's not really slaying the dragon. It's actually befriending the dragon and figuring Mm. out how to live in a world of dragons. You know, I talk a lot about one of the core skills I talk about in my book is editing your thoughts. And to recognize that just because your brain gives you a thought doesn't mean you go along with it because our thoughts are mostly irrational. They're driven a lot by our brain's negativity bias, our fear of uncertainty. And then we become, you become the editor of your thoughts. Well, what does a good editor do? This is my second book, right? What happened when I gave the draft to my editor? My draft, my editor didn't just go, oh yeah, this is wonderful. Let's go with that. She did two things. First, she checked for facts, right? So the first question you ask yourself, is this thought true? right? And you're the editor because a lot of the thoughts our brain gives us, they are not true. They're dramatic stories. They're overly (laughs) negative, including about ourselves. And that's because the brain is just looking out for possible danger. 
Then the second question you ask yourself, is this thought helpful? Does believing this thought, does it help me bring the best version of myself to this? Does it help me help others? Does it help me do X, Y, Z? And I'm just sharing with you, this is one of my favorite practices, but all my work is all about these practices, right? Because this is a skill. We're creating a skill of supporting ourselves. And so when we do that, we actually don't need to slay the thought. We just realize that the dragon is not as scary. And the dragon is like, oh, yeah, I'll just go sit over here. Actually, I wasn't that scary, right? And you realize (laughs) that that. sometimes it is, but you work through it. And so what you just said, that is the foundation. And every talk I give to leaders, I always say being a leader is hard. Yeah. And there's a lot of challenges. But the difference is, and this is kind of, for me, crystallized in the last couple of years, which is why I wrote my book, Challenge in life is constant, but struggle is optional. Ah, and that. struggle mm-hmm. is what's on the outside, on the inside. Struggle comes from our mindset towards a challenge, the way we treat ourselves, the way we treat our emotions and our thoughts and other people. And that is something we have control over. And that's when we practice these emotional fitness skills of awareness and acceptance and gratitude and kindness and self-care and self-compassion. We actually can struggle less even when there's a lot of really horrible things going on the outside. And the benefit isn't just that we feel better, which we do, which is wonderful, but also we have more to give. And so for all the leaders who want to be this force of good, wonderful, but you have to start with yourself. Absolutely. I love all that. And it it reminds me a lot of, a lot of, what we're talking about here is kind of even rooted in stoicism in the sense that, you know, where the obstacle actually becomes the way. And so it's like Mm. the challenge is actually, you kind of want that. you kind of want the obstacles because to your point, the struggle is, is the optional point, right? Okay. This obstacle has presented itself. I can choose. If I choose to look at it as a struggle, well then yeah, it's going to be like you in Vienna, you're going to miss out on the, that's on, right. It's that's going to, right. You're going to miss out on the opportunity of seeing the great opera house in Vienna. You know, you're just going to be lamenting in your struggle as opposed to what is this obstacle going to teach us, you know? And then because and if think you- about just to the Vienna story, I love that you brought that up. So not only did I miss out on that joy, which would be fueling and would give me strength mm-hmm. to go through the more, but think of what I brought to my parents. Exactly. I brought the stress and the heaviness. I wasn't a force of good. I wasn't a light. I was a heaviness. I was a weight. I was a tax. And that's what we do as leaders when we don't take care of ourselves and fuel ourselves. We're actually a heaviness. We drag our people back. And I realize this is painful to hear, but that is what got me to fundamentally change my approach to myself. I have so much, you know, people talk to me now, they're like, you know, but you still work so hard. And I work harder, Richard, than I ever have. And I'm a really hard worker. I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm out there trying to help people do something that's really challenging. And I work with companies and I convince them and I'm trying to do something really difficult, but I work differently. It doesn't mean I don't get tired. I'm pretty tired right now. We're doing my book launch, there's <laughs> a lot going on. It doesn't mean that I don't stress. Of course I do, but I have this arsenal of tools and I have this most important is the awareness. Like right now I'm aware that my energy tank is on low. Mm-hmm. And so, you know what? I'm not going to do emails tonight. There are burning emails in my inbox, but is that more important than doing something to fuel myself so that I have more to give tomorrow? So tomorrow when I talk to my colleague, I'm not, a, I'm not a snapping at her. I'm not being impatient, but I actually bring my best to her, which brings out the best in her. Yes. And it all goes back to, you know, one of the 
one of the things, one of the first things that I began to practice gratitude, but also awareness. And I did not want to practice awareness. I did not, Richard, want to become aware <laughs> of my thoughts and emotions. Right. I didn't like any of them I know. at all. I really wanted emotional oblivion. But once you shine a light of awareness, it's very powerful. You cannot unshine it. And having that awareness of where my energy is, what am I bringing to others? What is that? You know, I often say this to leaders. You don't just impact people with your words and actions. You impact them with your energy, yep. with your emotions and having the awareness of what am I bringing? And by the way, I have days where even with all my tools and my awareness, I am drained and I am snappy, but you know what I do now? I acknowledge that. Yeah. So I often say to my team, Hey guys, you know what? Didn't sleep great last night. Really annoyed at blah, blah, blah. So if I'm like we are today, please know that it's not about you. <sighs> Everyone exhales. They don't have to struggle trying to figure out like, why is she that mm. way? Boy, Richard, do I wish I could go back to all oh, those 20 years and all the different people I impacted and have that awareness and have that acknowledgement and also say to them, like just before actually you and I started um, our recording, there's something that we're working on and my colleague wanted me to take a look at it or was like put a comment and I said, you know what? I, I can't tonight. I have no more energy. So we can do it later. Just having that awareness well, yeah. is so helpful. I think, you know, I, I just had this thought when you're thinking, and I've, I've had a couple of conversations over the last couple of weeks about this, that it's like, if you look at high performance and we all want to be high performers and get more things done and, and have impact and leave legacy, it's less about, and we, we, we tend to default or think it's about time management and it's really about mm. leveraging energy. It really energy is management, energy emotional management, management, emotional management. Yes. It's not about tasks and time management. No. It's about leveraging your energy. And, you know, you said leadership is hard. I agree with 100%. And I'd say that I used to think, and I even used to teach and coach, even in the early stages of my Marine Corps, even when I got out of the Marine Corps, early stages of, the cor early stages of my corporate stuff 16, 17 years ago, that it was so external. And now it's, mm. that's what I was trying to say, that it, I think it's 80%, 90% internal, working on yourself yes. and getting that light that you shine as big as possible so people can bathe in it. And if people bathe in it, then it's up to them if they choose to, to kind of, that's the best thing you can do. And, and the, the selfless leader as a martyr is what we default to thinking, I got to do this. It's all about them. And which is all sounds good. And I'm not saying you, you need to devoid it, but you have to take care of yourself first to your point. And if you're not, yeah. getting, if you're not getting up in the morning, and doing the gratitude and taking care of yourself, you're cheating the world. You're shaming the angels, in my opinion, if you're doing it, if you, if you don't do that. That's right. I mean, you know, I, uh, I've thought about this a lot in terms of just reflecting on myself about my impact and the impact. I've always tried to do good and create, and I have so much more capacity now, Richard. Yeah. I, I am able to help so many more and I begin every morning by doing things for me. Yeah. In to. fact, the days when I can't, so I'm a morning person, we're all different. You don't mm -hmm. have to, although the way you begin the day impacts the way the day goes. So I'm a proponent of doing your emotional fitness, taking care in the morning and throughout the day. But I can literally tell the days where for some reason I have to do an early talk or I'm traveling and I haven't done those maintenance things, right? It's about maintenance of my energy. I my light is not to right. your point is not as bright. I can't give as much. And so again, it, it's having that, you know, it does you talked about courage before. There's a chapter on courage in my book because it requires courage. 
this is scary stuff we're talking about. Yeah, for sure it is. Go within. I mean, I remember when I first, you know, in that darkness that I was in, but I started to just pay attention to what was going on inside. And like I said to you, after two minutes, I just wanted to be done with it. And I wanted more oblivion. It's, it's scary stuff. It's scary to drop our stories, right? It was scary for me to drop my story that I'm a lone ranger, that I'm a superwoman, that I have to do everything on my own, that I have to struggle through everything. It was scary to drop that because who was I without that? Well, actually, I have a lot of people who support me and I can do a lot of things on my own. And I don't want to be a superwoman. Please, please, let's take off the cape. I'm a human being. I need sleep and food and self-care and all. But so this does require courage, but I... You know, my new book is called The Awesome Human Project, and it's all about these skills. And I say to people in the introduction, I write a letter to start the book, and I say, I think undertaking your awesome human project and taking care of these things, it is the most important task that you have because it's the only way that you can truly be a force of good. Yeah, 100%. I love what you're doing. I wish we had more time. <laughs> I love talking to you. I know. We, we need to do more. I mean, so when's the book come out? The Awesome Human Project? February February 8th. I can't wait for this thing to come out because I think it's, it's well Me needed too. and, and um, I'm excited for what you're doing. You're speaking my language and um, w- like with you, we've all learned it the hard way. Right. And, and it's, I think it's needed more than ever now, particularly that everybody's at each other's throats and everybody wants to win. And I'm tired of people planting flags and tired of people taking positions, mm. you know, and we need to, and you know, I think when people talk about this emotional intelligence or the emotional self-care, all that stuff. You're right. It does seem frou-frou. And again, you, you don't have to become a Buddhist monk to do this, right? This is just kind of common sense stuff, everything you're talking about. And I love the the tactics of changing the beliefs. I, You know, what you were talking about, kind of the tactics, like, well, is this 100% true? Whatever, pick whatever it is. Well, I can never speak in front of 10,000 people. Is that absolutely 100% undeniably true in all the universe? And, you know, well, no. Okay. No, actually. And I always say, for something to be true, you have to have evidence to support it. Right. So what is the evidence? Evidence. And that's when we come up empty. And so, but then the second question really helps. Does believing that actually help you? So if you believe that you can't do it, how does it help you do it? Right. Yes. And that's when we start to think about, you know, the people ask me, okay, so how do I shift out of that? Just as an example, I want to do this, but I can't do it. This is when, you know, it's a good thing to end on is this is when we have to, um, Stop thinking of ourselves and actually shift and think about how does doing this thing, this scary thing that I don't think I can do, speak or whatever, how does that help others? Yeah. And so when we get out of the I, 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 what will people think of me? What if I can't? And we shift into, well, how does doing this help someone else? It's amazing what happens because our brain just goes, yes, pro-social mindset. I will give you all the fuel. I'll give you all the motivation. We are pro-social beings at our core. We want to help. We want to be kind. We want to contribute. And so that's actually a really powerful mindset when when you have a thought and you ask yourself, is this helpful? And the answer is no, but your brain's still afraid to do it. The best way that I know how to is to connect to your bigger why and think about how does doing this contribute to someone else? It's amazing what happens. All of a sudden, your brain becomes your ally. And it's like, yeah, try this, try this. We can do it. Try this. Because at our core, we actually want to be that positive impact on other people. But again, we have to start with ourselves. I love it. Great way. How can people um, reach out to you, learn more about you, learn more about the book? Easy. NatalieKogan.com is the website. 
All the info is there. The book's called The Awesome Human Project, Break Free from Daily Burnout, Struggle Less and Thrive More in Work and Life. And uh, yeah, come visit, say hello. I'm on all the social medias, Natalie Kogan, but nataliekogan.com is the hub. And um, I always say nothing gives me more meaning and joy than to know that something I've shared is helpful or you are practicing something I've shared and it's helping you. So I, I would love to hear from you and you can find me on all the socials and on nataliekogan.com. Well, I'll have links to all that in the show notes. Natalie, you're doing great stuff. I'm so blessed to have met you and uh, hopefully we can keep the conversation going. I think you're doing great stuff. Thank you for coming on the Ditto. show. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for your your support and your encouragement and such thoughtful conversation. Absolutely. A great way for me to end the day. Thank you. Really enjoyed this conversation. My takeaway, my big aha on this was when we were talking about servant leadership or kind of the leader eats last mentality that you've heard me talk about for nine years on this show. And I still believe in, but her point is this, is that you cannot be so serving that you don't take care of yourself because if you, if you don't have anything to give, you're useless to your organization. I've talked to a couple guests on the show, and I think Mike Etor on the last episode. We mentioned that there's a famous uh, Marine Corps colonel that got relieved of command in the Gulf, the first Gulf War, because he didn't take care of himself. Look, so servant leadership, yes, but you got to serve yourself first. It's not selfish. You've got to take care of yourself. You got to be there for your team. I just love this conversation. Go check out nataliekogan.com to learn more. Go check out her TED Talk, an amazing TED Talk easy to find. Uh, I'll have links to it in the show notes. And of course, her brand new book, The Awesome Human Project. Go check it out and get it in your arsenal. All right. Thank you for being a fan of the show. If you haven't done so, please follow me on your favorite podcast application. If you're so inclined, please leave me a review. Spotify allows you to do a review now. In addition to Apple Podcasts, please, if you're finding some value, tell somebody about this show, share it with somebody. That's how we continue to grow. It's through those efforts, your grassroots efforts to make people aware of this show. And if you're so inclined, please five-star review and let me know what you think. Reach out to me at doseofleadership.com to learn more about all my speaking, teaching, and consulting services. And you can learn more about the podcast there as well. Thanks for being a fan and I'll see you on the next episode. Hey, Mike. Glad you could join me for some great seafood. Me too. Wait, why are you dressed in fishing gear? You said we were going out to catch great seafood, right? Yes, to Popeye's. Do you even know how to fish? No, I thought you did. Oh, yeah. I could catch pretty good seafood at Popeye's. Let's go. Let Popeye's do the fishing while you enjoy our delicious signature seafood. Get Popeye's flounder fish sandwich or shrimp tackle box before they're gone. Limited time at participating U.S. restaurants. <laughs>